Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. It is really, really good to see you and be back. Our family went away on a wonderful five-week vacation. I love my family. You guys are also my family. And so we hit up Florida and um, North Carolina, got to see uh, Emily's side of the family. My family was a little sick. And then we hit up Disney World and my kids had the best time of their life. And then we also went to the beach and the beach is a lot warmer than it is right here right now. So I got off the plane. I was in flip-flops and shorts and t-shirt. I was like, I don't know how to do Boston anymore. I got to be reminded. But really good to be back with you guys. And I hope our guest teachers did a really good job. Uh, If you're a guest, uh, guys, we've been in a teaching series in the book of Genesis. And so we just walk uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through God's word. And this week, I'm not gonna lie to you, it's not the most exciting passage for us to be walking through. And I was like, ah, this is like, is there something in here? And there really is beautiful truths that are in today's passage for us. And so if you're taking notes of really, we just have one main point in today's message, and it's the title. So I'm making it easy on you this week as we get back into things together. And the title is simply, Remember and Rely on the Promises of God. Now, guys, as I was thinking about uh, this passage, I was reminded of a story uh, when I was in middle school, uh, or actually high school, excuse me. I was able to walk from my high school home. And typically when I get home, my mom was there. She was a school teacher. And so she got off the school. I got off the school and she could get home in time. And then obviously the house is unlocked and I can get in. Well, for a reason that day, I'm walking home and it's in the rain. I've got my umbrella, um, but I get home and my, like the door's locked. And I'm like, "Mm, this is a bit odd. I went around the side door. It's locked. The garage is shut. And like, I can't get inside of the the house. And so my neighbor's like, hey, that I was walking home with, hey, do you want me to stay with you? I was like, no, like you can take the umbrella. My mom should be home in a moment. They didn't have one. So they went home with my umbrella. And I was like, wait on my mom and wait on my mom. And the rain is just coming down. It's ruining me. It's ruining my projects in my backpack. It's ruining my little like flip phone. Y'all remember when I'm talking about little flip phone? It's ruining that in my pocket. I was like, where is mom? I'm waiting like 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours rolled by. My mom comes in the driveway and she's like, Aaron, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm waiting on you to get home. She's like, you know, you have a house key in your backpack, right? Like, mom, don't, what you talking about? I got a house key. I have a house key in my backpack. Like, what am I doing? Get the house key out. We go inside. And she's like, Aaron, like what happened? Did you not remember that you had a house key? I was like, I forgot I had a house key. And guys, as we think about today's passage, the promises of God work very similarly. You have the promises of God, but if you forget them and the storms of life happen to you, things are not gonna go so well, amen? It's a very simple story but something that you can really remember. We must rely and remember the promises of God. And that's exactly what we're gonna unpack today. Let's start in verse one in chapter 13. So Abram, he went up from Egypt and he and his wife were together and all that they had. And Lot, which was Abraham's nephew was with him and they went into the Negev. Now guys, this verse transitions us from last week's uh, sermon with Pastor Stephen. And that's when we saw that Abraham led his family into Egypt uh, to survive this massive famine that was happening in the land. And if you remember, uh, when he got there, he told the Egyptians that his wife was actually his sister. Husbands, not a great idea. It's not a good thing to say about your wife, Uh, but he did that out of fear. 
because he thought that the Egyptians would kill him because his wife was pretty. And so they would kill him in order to get his wife because of her beauty. So listen, rather than protecting his wife, he protected himself and he gave away his wife to Pharaoh. Again, husband's not a great idea. But as we see here in verse one of chapter 13, God was faithful to Abram, even when Abram was not faithful to God. Again, as verse one says, it shows his faithfulness. Abram left Egypt, so he was alive. He leaves with his wife and all he had. God was faithful even when Abram wasn't. See, listen, Abram forgot, guys, God's promise to him in verse 12 or chapter 12. If you remember, God gave a promise to Abram of blessing, of protection, and that Abram would actually live long enough to have children. Now, Abram forgot that promise and that led him into panic. He's thinking, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. What do I do? I'll just make up this lie about my wife. And when you forget God's promise, that's what you do. When you forget the promises of God, what happens? You forego the peace of God in your heart. It's exactly what happened to Abram in Egypt. When you forget the promises of God, you forego the peace of God in your heart. And so what happens to you? You end up making decisions out of fear rather than faith. And that'll end up harming you and others. And guys, that's exactly what we see happen with Abram. Again, this is like a long sentence and this is just the whole main point of the message. If you're like, bro, what you got for us today? That's it right there on the screen for you, okay? Take a screenshot, get it tatted on your back and you're good for today, okay? By the way, just that's, I got really lots of bad dad jokes, guys. I haven't got to air them out with anybody in, for a while, so here we are. But church, honestly though, if you rely on the promises of God, you'll begin to relish in that peace that your heart really needs. A lot of us are anxious and worried about the things in our life our marriage, our kids, our family, our job, relationships we have, and we're anxious. And so if we rely on his promises, then we get to relish in that peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And then what happens is a byproduct is that we remain on the path of God, which ends up bringing him glory and your joy. So this is a good thing for us to remember and rely on the promises of God. So even when Abram was not faithful, God was faithful to him. Now this week, guys, we're gonna see that God continues his faithfulness to Abram and his family. And we're gonna see how that faithfulness actually starts to change Abram's heart. And it changes him from being a man of fear and lying in chaos and creates him to be a man of faith. When you understand, guys, God's faithfulness to you, it literally changes how you treat others, how you view yourself, how you live your life. And you're gonna notice a change in Abram as we work through this story together. And I hope that it happens the same thing in you. When you remember and rely on God's faithfulness, it changes you. Verse two, now Abram was very rich in livestock. Dude's got livestock, he's got silver and he's got gold. So the text is reminding us that Abram is mega rich and he's not traveling alone. It says that Lot's with him. And in fact, he's got a huge entourage with him. There's a ton of people and there's a lot of possessions going with him out of Egypt, continually to the land that God has promised him. Verse three, and so he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram, this is key. And there at that place, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now I love this moment because Abram remembered and returned 
to the place that he first called upon God's name, which was Yahweh, the name that God revealed about himself. turns to that place. Guys, in Abram's story, this moment is a sign to us that Abram's actually turned away from the path of sin that he was living in Egypt. The dude was willing to give up his wife in order to save his own life, not love her, not protect her, not nourish her, as Ephesians 5 would commend him to do. And something begins to happen in his heart. He goes back to where he first started and he calls upon the name of the Lord. He is turned away and he begins to follow God again. And Christian, this is a great encouragement for you that God will always, because of his faithfulness, he will always welcome you back. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've abandoned, God will always welcome you back to himself because of what Jesus has done for you. His sacrifice on the cross paved the way to where you could always come back to the place you first met God at the cross. So guys, this moment, you might feel like a royal screw up. You might've hurt the closest person to you. You might've done something this week that you are so embarrassed and so ashamed about. And in Abram's life, you're reminded and encouraged. You can go back to the place you first met God at the cross and you can receive his love and his forgiveness. Guys, I want to remind you, if you're in that place today, just want to put a couple things on the screen to remind you. I hope it's not cheesy, but this is often how I pray. When, when, when you're in a place of sin, this is helpful for you. You can go and ask God for forgiveness. You can ask God to free you from that desire to sin that you were just in. And you can pray, God, would you fuel me not to go back there again and fuel me to live the life you designed me to live for my good and your glory. God, forgive me, free me from that desire and fuel me to walk with you in the way you designed me to live. And that's what Abraham does. And I love what 1 John 1, 9 tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we call on his name. And that's exactly what Abram does. Verse five, and Lot, again, Abram's nephew, went with Abram and that dude had flocks and he had herds and he had tents too. So the land guys, verse six, could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great and they could not dwell together. So the text is telling us, verse five and six, that both of these jokers are filthy rich. Abraham, his nephew Lot, and there isn't enough space for all of their wealth. Like some of us are like, "Mm, I'd love to have that problem. And some of us, you're like in a tiny apartment and you're like, I do have that problem, but I don't have the blessing of all the wealth, right? That's where Abram is in this moment. They're so rich guys that they both hired workers to help them take care of all of their stuff. And then those bros are having turf wars. Like, get off my land, you're too close to me. By the way, we're in uh, North Carolina again and we're out sort of in the countryside. That joke happens. People on some turf wars. We had someone come on the land and we were like uh, burning some shrubbery around. They're like, you can't have fire. I'm like, that's, that's not even your property. So this is real, by the way, or maybe just the South invaded the ancient history. I don't know, but here we are. Um, but they're in turf wars and they're having big issues. And so uh, the great theologian, Biggie Smalls would say, mo money, mo problems. And that's exactly what's happening with them. Again, another joke for you, you're welcome. So they had to split up. That was terrible. I know guys, just delete it from your minds. 
you don't know who that is, it's 90s rap and I don't recommend it, but here we go, okay? That's what's going on with these guys. A lot of issues, verse eight. So Abram comes up with a plan, verse eight. Abram says a lot, hey man, let there be no strife between you and me. Man, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, man, we're kinsmen, we're family, he says. Verse nine, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And this is not him kicking them out. Listen, he's gonna bless them. He says, if you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, meaning the right side of the land, then I'll go to the left. Guys, this is really interesting here. Abram is offering Lot the opportunity to pick first what kind of land he wants and where he wants to live. Guys, this highlights the change that's beginning to happen in Abram. He's gone from being a selfish schemer in Egypt, willing to give up his own life or give up his own wife to save his skin. And he's changing into a generous uncle who's willing to give up his land to benefit his nephew. Now guys, listen, Abraham had every right to choose whatever part of the land that he wanted. It was his, he had every right. But Abram was able to give over the better land because why? Abram had a better promise. The promise that all of this land would be eventually his and his family in the future anyway. So he could be generous with it now in the present. Ooh, church there, guys, there is a ton I wish we had a ton we could grasp right here in Abraham's life for our own light. Guys, do you know how to turn a selfish person into a generous person? I love to know because I've got a lot of selfishness, but do you know what can change, how God can change a selfish person into a generous person? What God does is he convinces that person that he himself is all they need for happiness, security, and comfort. And he convinces us He convinces them of this, that no position at work, guys, no possession in your life, no relationship that you could have will satisfy you. Only he will. And guys, when a person really gets this, they will be truly generous. They will use their possessions to bless others rather than hoard their possessions for themselves. Listen, guys, a, a truly generous person, they know that the treasure of heaven in the future is better than the treasure on earth and the present. That's what Abram's holding on to. God, the promise of a Messiah, Jesus, through my offspring and this land being eventually theirs, who would ever trust in Christ, that promise of the future is better than this land that I have in the present. And when Christian, you grasp that, that what God has for you in heaven what he has for you in Christ, how he loves, protects, and satisfies you, when you know that that's enough for you, you give over what you have because it's lesser. It's not as most significant. Does that make sense? Guys, my heart's got to grasp this and so does yours. This is not a tithing sermon. This is not give more money to the church. This is how to free up your heart to stop being selfish and to help you walk with Jesus new and fresh. There is something in this that Abraham is being changed by I'm sure he's looking back and remembering, man, God was faithful to me when I was faithless in Egypt. I gave her for my wife and God protected me. If he's gonna protect me of that and provide for me and make sure his promises come true, then I can give over my land. I can give this over. Guys, may we be the same type of people. The implications of this are just massive. It's not just money that you could give to the church. It's not just generosity that you could give to friends and neighbors. It's how you live your life. It's what you're willing to sacrifice and give over. 
because what you have in Christ is better than what you could have on earth, amen? That's what we see from Abram and I love it. Christian, hold on the promises of heaven rather than the possessions on earth so that others on earth can be pointed to our God in heaven. This is how God makes a generous person. But unfortunately, your boy Lot, Abraham's nephew, has not learned this truth yet. That dude has tons of issues. And I could say that because I'm one who has a bunch too. Guys, you're gonna see Lot get in a ton, ton of problems in the weeks to come. And this week is no different. Verse 10, so here's your boy Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered when he's picking his land. He's like, do I have this land or this land? He's looking out, he's like, that's well watered. And it reminded him of the stories of the garden of the Lord. He's talking about Eden. He's remembering how Abram told him about the Garden of Eden from his family and it passed away back. And so he's like, oh, that's well watered. That looks like the land of Egypt that we were just in. And it was well plenished. And they took care of us in the famine in the direction of Zor. Verse 11, so what Lot do? It's an easy decision, seems like, right? Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And then Lot journeyed east towards it. Now guys, listen, on the surface, did that look like a poor decision? No, if you're choosing where to live, you would want to be in that day and age near water, have good crops, good soil. On the surface, it seems like he's making the good and obvious choice, right? Everyone had nod. It looks logical, right? The land looked like the Garden of Eden that he had heard about. It was green, well-watered. And remember, your boy Lot just survived a famine, okay? And he doesn't wanna go through that again. So he's like, I'm gonna pick the complete opposite of what looks like famine and I'm picking that land. So verse 12, Lot settled among the cities in the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13, where the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Now this is interesting for us. Unfortunately, Lot's choice was based on worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. Now, what he thought would bring him comfort would end up bringing him chaos and heartache. Now, this move so close to Sodom would get him in massive trouble in the weeks to come. We're learning here from the commentary in Genesis that Sodom was a land of great sin and of great wickedness against the Lord. And Lot brought his tent, his whole land, all of his people, all of his possessions right up next to a city that didn't love God, rebelled against God and was hurting others. And God, it's with this note that I just wanna pause for a moment, church, because you'll be faced with all kinds of decisions just like Lot's decision. Jeremiah 17 teaches us that our heart is deceitful above all things, even more than social media, right? Even more than the news, right? Which means that you guys, you can't always trust what your heart wants most. You just can't, it's deceitful. Your heart doesn't really know what's actually best for you. It just goes off of what it thinks might be best. So where the culture says, follow your heart, Jeremiah screams, no, don't. You can't follow your heart. It doesn't know what's best for you. Church, you may be one day offered a great job with double the pay. And it seems good and obvious on the surface like Lot. But let me ask you, will that job cause you to work double the hours? 
And will it cause you to take time away from your family, maybe your health, maybe your relationship with God? Seems like a good decision on the surface, but is it really maybe a good decision? Or maybe, guys, you're always looking for that next place to travel, that next place to live. You long to live in a bigger city, maybe like a New York City, or you want to move back to the suburbs where you lived as a kid, or you want that massive trip internationally, and you think that will satisfy with you. There's nothing wrong with traveling. There's nothing wrong with moving. But maybe when you're, you're looking to be satisfied and be comforted, is that really the thing that's going to provide that? Or maybe, guys, you're looking for that perfect someone to date or marry. But all your non-negotiables are actually worldly qualities and not godly ones. So you keep compromising and you keep getting hurt. Friends, there are three simple, really easy questions you can ask yourself when you're making life decisions like Lot was. I want to put them on the screen for you. My format got jacked up, but here we are. Three simple things. You can take a screenshot, write these down. Ask yourself these genuinely every time you're making a life decision. Number one, will this decision help me to better follow Jesus in the way he's called me to live? Will this decision help me to better follow Jesus or will it be more challenging to follow him? Number two, will this decision allow me to love and serve others better or will it allow me just to be served better? And third, will this decision bring new idols and temptations that I am not ready for? Guys, if you will honestly assess that and ask those three questions to yourself, you can protect yourself from the harm that Lot is going to face as he tucks himself up to things that will hurt him and harm him and end up in chaos for his life. It seemed good and obvious that that was the better land but it was not the better decision for Lot. He moved too close to Sodom. His eyes were set on seeking comfort and not on seeking Christ. It ends up harming him and you'll see that in a minute. And church, let me ask you, so where are you setting your eyes? You might be making decisions like Lot. You're afraid of whatever famine happened in your past and you don't wanna happen it again. So you store up more money, you put yourself away from people, you're not gonna open up towards others and be vulnerable anymore because you got hurt in that famine, that relationship last time. So you tuck yourself away or whatever happens, you build up your bank account or you decide not to have kids or you decide, I don't wanna be in any significant relationship or I'm not gonna marry that person because you're afraid and you tuck yourself up next to comfort rather than Christ. Church, where are your eyes set? Where do you find your comfort. Then chapter 13 ends with what we call a Mufasa moment <laughs> uh, because my kids love the Lion King. It's a very uh, unique and reminder of the way this passage ends. God comes to Abram and tells him to look around. And he's like, and everything the light touches shall be yours, right? Like that's like the Mufasa moment. That's basically what happens. Abram is told, look northward, southward, westward, eastward, look everywhere and everything that you see will be yours. And he reaffirms, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham in verse 15. He reaffirms, he says, Abraham, all the land that you see right now, I'm gonna give to you and to your offspring after you. And that offspring is gonna eventually lead us to Christ. And the promised land is not just a physical land. It's ultimately the kingdom of heaven that we will all go to if you're in Christ one day. And what I love about God is that he keeps reaffirming the promise because what do we start with? You've got to remember and rely on the promises of God in order to relish in his peace, amen? 
And some of you this morning, you need to be remembered and reminded of the promises of God. If you know me, I bring this up like all the time in community group or DNA group or in church. And you might be tired of hearing this, but let me remind you of the promises of God that are near and dear that will help your heart. Let me give you four quickly. You can just jot them down real fast. Just the references. If you're discouraged about your past sins this morning, like you're a royal screw up. You're so embarrassed of what you've done. You're like, how did I do that again? And you're tired of yourself. Would you remind yourself of the truth of Romans 8, 38 through 39? That I am convinced, even in my sin, I'm convinced because of Jesus, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation, including my sin, will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Abram needed to hear that. God met him with that. You today need to be reminded that if you are just feeling guilty and in shame because of your sin, there is nothing, including what you did wrong, to separate you from the love of God. Be reminded of that today. Rely on that and be refreshed and renewed. Also, if you're struggling with present hardships, not your past, not what you did, but your present hardships, you're struggling right now. What happened this morning with your family, with your kids, Whatever the case may be, be reminded of this. Deuteronomy 6.31. The Lord, your God, he goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Better than that, this God that's with you, Romans 8.28, you hear this from me all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things, the rebellion of your kids, your struggling marriage, hardship at your job, the sin that you even have, All things God promises to funnel it through his sovereign loving hand towards you and to work it out for good because you're called by him according to his purpose. If you're struggling with present hardships, would you be reminded he goes with you? He'll never leave you, never forsake you and work out everything that you're facing in your life right now for your good. Be reminded, pick your head up for a moment and look at him. That's what he's telling you. Last thing, if you're anxious about your future, which most of us are, let's be honest. Some of you are in school right now, undergrad, grad school, you're anxious. You're, maybe you're family planning and you're trying to think about kids and I don't have enough money or what does this look like? Where am I gonna live? How am I gonna work this out in this relationship? And you're anxious about the future. Guys, I wanna bring up to your eyes, Revelation 21, and I want you to remember the promise that this is how your future is gonna gloriously work out. I love this. When I'm anxious about my finances, my family, our church, my future, and I'm like, what will happen in the future? What if this happens? I can remember this is ultimately my future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was gone, verse three. And I will hear one day, you will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, and I love this. This is my future. This is yours, Christian. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For those former things will have passed away. That's your future. When you're anxious, not knowing what will happen in your marriage, your future, your finances, you're like, how can I get out of this? This is the hope. I won't share too much because I don't want to trigger too much, but I found out last night that on, on the news in my hometown in Roanoke, Virginia, one of my uh, friends growing up had uh, ended his wife's life and then ended his life on New Year's Eve. 
And so I was texting with some of my friends from Roanoke and um, because I know him, I know that this was not in the forefront of his mind because of his finances and his struggles, some things that were going on in his life and his marriage, there was no hope he felt for the future. So he thought it was better if he wasn't in it. Guys, if any of us are in that spot, where you feel like life would just be better if you weren't in it, that you don't see a way out, things are tough for you, you're discouraged, you've got some suicidal thoughts, guys, I remind you that it, it does get better. Christ didn't just redeem you from sin, he redeemed your whole life. And I want you to hang on to these promises. No matter what you're facing, God will face it with you in the future and he will move you out of that hardship. And if that's where you're at in this place, feeling so low that you think it's better if I'm not even here, would you be reminded that he's with you? He'll never forsake you. He'll work out whatever's going on for your good. And this is ultimately your future without that pain, without that sorrow, without that heartache. This is the hope of Christ that I wish my friend could hang on to. And this is the hope I want you Christian to hold on to today. Does it make sense guys? Didn't mean to bring it down too crazy. Let's just keep it going forward. Like Abram, if we rely on God's promises, we will relish in his peace, that peace that our hearts are so anxious for. Now, as we move to chapter 14, we're going to go a lot faster here because uh, I'm going to summarize a lot of it. So you're welcome. I'm back. Uh, chapter 14 begins with a cutscene, kind of moves away from this part of the narrative, and it cuts to this really violent and epic war between five kings that I can't pronounce their names, who were from around the Dead Sea area region. And they stopped paying taxes to four more powerful kings of the East with even more unpronounceable names that I'm not gonna try. Nine kings total, the Eastern kings win, but in the process, they take Lot, that joker, and all his people and all his possessions. So again, Lot, is showing us that he definitely did make the right decision because he was living so close to war glorifying Sodom. So what happens? Abraham catches word in verse or chapter 14 and he makes the decision to go and rescue Lot. And this is where it gets cool or it does for me. Abram gets 318 of his men together and he chases after the enemy that took Lot for 120 miles, all the way from the area of Dan, all the way up through Damascus, 128 miles. And then he defeats them in a stealth night raid. Like you think Call of Duty is cool? This is better. And he saves a day. In verse 16, this part concludes, says, then Abram brought back all the possessions and he brought back all the kinsmen of Lot, kinsmen, and his possessions and all the women and all the people that were taken. Now, guys, listen, I, I do believe that this story is real. It is historical. These kings did exist, but it's also symbolic. Abram here is foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus as the ultimate hero who would come after us and rescue us from sin and Satan's plundering. And then he would reunite us back to the family of God through what Christ has done on the cross, paving and paying our way through his death. Abram did this through a victorious military invasion. But Jesus will have done this for you, Christian, 
through a victorious physical resurrection. This story is real, but it's pointing us, foreshadowing what Jesus will do to rescue his family, the lost children of God. Now, when Abram finally makes it back from rescuing Lot, and again, this is all being told in a few sentences, but it takes several weeks for this to happen. Two kings, when he gets back, come out to meet Abram. One of the kings that got mentioned earlier, the king of Sodom comes out and then a new king, the 10th king shows up in this passage. Now this is fascinating to me. Bible nerds, this is your moment. Old Testament scholar people, this is your day. This 10th king, his name is, he's the king of Salem. He's a man named Melchizedek. Now, this is interesting because Salem is almost certainly the ancient name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the holy city. The name Salem means what? Peace. So who's this king? He's the king of peace. And his name, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, excuse me, literally means king of righteousness. See where I'm going here? King of peace, king of righteousness. So when these two kings come out to greet Abram after his victory, Melchizedek brings bread and wine. Hmm. Ooh, right? Who else brought out a meal of bread and wine celebrating a victory that would ultimately come? So this king from Salem, he's throwing a feast and then he offers Abram this blessing. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's talking about God. And blessed be God most high who has delivered you from your enemies into your hand. It's revealed here that Melchizedek worships God, the one true God, which is actually kind of amazing because at this point in Genesis, we're all under the assumption that Abraham and his people are like the only ones who worship Yahweh. But then there's this mysterious king of peace, king of righteousness, who comes out of Jerusalem, who is a worshiper of God. This is pointing to us something profound. Now, Abram in this moment was apparently quite moved at this king of Salem because he immediately offers a tenth of everything that he has, which is powerful. Because if you know uh, Jewish or even Christian tradition, uh, the, the scriptures talk about giving a tenth of your finances in order to continue the ministry of what God would do in a community like a church or a synagogue. And so we get this practice even as we give as Christians of giving a tenth or 10% or giving a percentage of your money away to God and his work. But Abram goes further. The dude gives 10% of everything that he has. I don't know if that means like 10% of his clothes. Hopefully it's a good 10%, not in a weird part, you know. He's giving away 10% of his animals, of his gold. He's giving this away. He's moved at this blessing. This is the first financial tithe found in the Bible anywhere. And it becomes a standard practice for the people of God and for us today, Christian. The chapter then quietly comes to an end but not without the reader, you and I thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. who in the world is this Melchizedek? Now guys, he seems like such a small, insignificant character. We don't know much about him here, guys. He only takes up three verses in the entire Bible. He doesn't get much screen time, but he's actually really important. So much so that about a thousand years later, King David would write a Psalm that includes a reference to Melchizedek. Psalm 110, 
Then a thousand years after that, the author of the book of Hebrews dedicates an entire chapter to Melchizedek. So actually this dude, this king has more written about him in the New Testament than he does the Old Testament. He gets a ton of screen time. So what in the world is going on here? And why am I nerding out about this? (laughs) Well, the key to his significance and its impact for you this morning is found in the book of Hebrews. I want to check out a few verses together and then we're going to wrap this whole thing up. We hope. I am back, just remember. (laughs) Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Obey meaning to believe in how he's commanded. God's commanded us to believe in Jesus for our salvation. So we're called to obey by believing. Verse 10. Being designated by God, Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, modeling his priesthood after Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, the author says, but he says, it's hard to explain. Man, I love the Bible. And that gives me a lot of grace today because what he says about Melchizedek is hard to explain and it is hard to explain, but it requires a good bit of biblical knowledge, knowledge that many of you and I have. And I want to remind us of that. If not, that's okay. You guys are a smart group. Let's unpack the importance of this. Chapter seven of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, was a priest of the most high God. And he met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. And to Abram, he apportioned, or um, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And this is pointing us to Jesus. Verse three, it says that this king was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. And this is resembling the son of God. And he continues a priest forever. So some scholars, guys, have drawn the conclusion that this means that Melchizedek must be some angel or pre-incarnate Christ since it says that he was without father or mother or genealogy. But guys, that's not really the case that's being made. Melchizedek is a normal human, but because his genealogy isn't recorded, they don't have who the mom or dad is. That's what it means. It's not that he didn't have a mom or dad. They don't know who it was. So because his genealogy isn't recorded, we could imagine then that his priesthood goes on forever and ever taking care of his people and blessing them and overseeing them and praying on their behalf and serving them like Jesus does now and forever. In order to understand Melchizedek, you have to understand the Old Testament priesthood. Priests in the Old Testament were meant to come from one specific tribe, Levi. And the Levitical priest had term limits to serve. They could only serve for about 30 years from 20 to 50 years old. And this reveals that Melchizedek is a different kind of priest. He doesn't come from Levi because Levi's not even born yet. He has no genealogy. And so we can imagine him serving unending terms for his people. Now, guys, if you went out to the street today, which I don't recommend this practice, but you could, and you ask people, how do you draw near to God? How do you think they would respond? Well, most would say in Boston today with only 3% believing the gospel and the Bible, they would respond maybe by saying, I don't believe in God. But some may say what looks like the obvious answer, to be a good person or to do the right things or 
to follow the rules, pray, go to church. And that's how you can draw near. That's what many would say. But how about an ancient Jewish person? How would they answer in that day? How would you draw near to God? They would probably say, well, first you need to obey the laws. You got to do the right things. You got to follow the Torah. And then you better believe that those people at that time would talk about the temple because where did God live? The temple, his presence was made known there. And how did he draw near God? You drew near God, listen, through a priest in the temple. And the old priest system, once a year on the day of atonement, the priest of Israel would go in to make a sacrifice behind the curtain that separated the presence of God and mankind. And that high priest would atone for the sins of people. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to know through this King of Salem. He's saying the old priesthood, it doesn't work. We need to set it aside. Good works, morality, sacrificial system, that's not what makes you draw near to God. We need a new high priest. We need a whole new system. We need one after the order of Melchizedek. And this points us to Jesus. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, he points to Jesus, the author does, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And my friends, Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is pointing you all the way forward to Jesus. Melchizedek brought a blessing to Abram, but Jesus brings a better blessing through which you and I can draw near to God. Melchizedek brought a meal to Abram, but Jesus brings us a better meal, salvation and satisfaction through faith in Jesus. Melchizedek had a reign and a rule, but Jesus is better because he rules over us eternally with grace and truth. Jesus is the better priest because he didn't offer a sacrifice. He became the sacrifice for you, your sins, God's wrath against us because of your sins. Jesus took it on himself so that you wouldn't have to. He atoned himself for us. He endured. He didn't just go behind the curtain. He became the curtain torn in two so that you could be made whole in him. Jesus died in our place so that you could have a place with him. Guys, you can draw near to Christ today because he is like Melchizedek meeting us after our war with sin. He meets us right there in the valley of whatever we've gone through. He meets us with love and forgiveness and he's willing to take your sin, sin that God hates, that God must punish because he's just. And he takes that sin he puts on himself so that you could have a place with him for all of eternity. My friends today, would you rely on this promise that for God so loved the world that he sent this Jesus to be our savior, to be our sacrifice so that when you believe in him, you won't perish for your sin like you should, but that Jesus would be the sacrifice. And this is to any who would believe. Today, would you rely on that promise that for anyone who would believe in Christ would be saved today? And then Christian, would you take all the promises of God? Would you remember them and rely on them? Let's pray. Let's pray.